Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for every word we just heard that's true. God, not all of it might make sense to us. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to know the difference between ideas, interpretations, theories, and what you teach us through your word. Lord, I pray that this morning we're able to learn more about you, more about the truth, and what you want us to know. Draw us closer to you, Jesus, we pray. And in your name we pray, amen. All right. I want to point out one phrase that Jesus said in that long passage. Birth pangs. Contractions. Can we talk about contractions for a minute? So, contractions are waves of pain that come upon the mother before the baby's born. The contractions, those waves of pain, tell you that a baby's coming. It does not tell you exactly when that baby is going to be born. I want to tell you, my dad was with my mom when I was born. He went to a couple of the Lamaze training classes before the birth of myself. And in one of those classes, they showed a video of a woman giving birth to prepare them mentally for what was going to take place in the birth. And my dad watched that whole first video, said he did fine, he paid attention, did okay, and then they told him they were going to play another video. And he said, I'm not sure if I could take another one, just give me a second. They started to play the next video and he proceeded to pass out unconscious. That apparently runs in the family. Now, that section about my dad doesn't actually have anything to do with the message, but I just wanted to say it. I know he's watching this one because it has to do with the end times. <laughs> so, back to the mother giving birth. Contractions. Waves of pain leading up to that final most amount of pain before the baby is born, before the new life. The final wave of pain is often the most difficult but it leads to new life. So we'll stop with the babies for a second and talk about background. Background for the text today. Before we get to Matthew 24, remember, Jesus the King is in Jerusalem. It's days before they're going to crucify him. We talked about several weeks the religious leaders were testing Jesus, trying to discredit him, trying to ask questions that would get people to oppose him. Didn't work. At the end of chapter 22, it said no one dared to ask him any more questions. But that didn't mean that he was done speaking. Throughout chapter 23, we saw Jesus then talk and pronounce woes to the Pharisees, those seven weighty woes, calling them hypocrites and how they were using people for their own selfish gain, and Jesus really let them have it. And after he spoke to them, it says in 24, chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, that we ended with last week, how Jesus walked away with his disciples. They're going towards the Mount of Olives. They pass the temple, and the disciples point out to Jesus, look at this architectural wonder. Did you notice this part of the temple and this part? And Jesus says to his disciples, not one stone in his temple is going to remain. It's going to be destroyed. And that leads to the pretty obvious question that we get to in the beginning of today's text, where the disciples go up to Jesus and ask him, when is that going to happen? And when are you going to return? So in light of the fact that the temple's going to be destroyed and that eventually Jesus is going to leave them and come back one day, the next three messages you're going to hear here are, in light of the end, have this mind, that's today's message, have this mind, the end in view. Next week is going to be, 
in light of the fact that one day Jesus is going to return, have this heart, and Dennis is going to bring us that message next week. And then in two weeks from now, in light of the fact that God's coming, Christ is going to come back, have this mind, have this heart, and then in three weeks, two weeks from now, have these hands, stewardship. How do we live in the meantime? So we get to today's text, which is one of the main chapters on eschatology in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. So let's talk a little bit about eschatology, the study of the end times, the end of the world, the end of the age. So a couple questions. When are the end times? It's sort of a trick question, so I'll just answer it real quick. It's, it's a two-part answer. The first answer to that question, when are the end times? When are the last days? The New Testament answer to that is as soon as Jesus left. As soon as he ascended, the end times began. The last days started. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, in these last days is how the writer introduces his, his letter to the Hebrews. In these last, these final days, the end times started right after Jesus ascended. The time between he left and that he comes back is known as the end times. So we're living in the end times, according to the Lord. However, another way to answer that question of when are the end times could be answered the brief period of time right before Jesus returns. The brief period of time, some might say seven years, some might say a few years, there's a bunch of answers there. Brief period of time right before the return of the king. Next question, why does the Bible talk about the end times, the last days? Is it so that we can form our own camps and factions and get out our you know, graphics and maps of how we think the end times are going to work out and then divide over it and argue and make sure that you're not in my church if you don't hold my view of the end times? Nope. <laughs> so why are they there? I think a good answer is to encourage us to live faithfully with the hope of knowing that Jesus returns and Jesus wins. Why does he talk about the end times, the last days? So that we can have hope today, in the now, to live faithfully as we know he is going to come back. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation would be the two books of the Bible that mostly talk about the end times or the last days. Daniel in the Old Testament, Revelation in the New Testament. But another reason that it talks about the end times is so that we can know God, so that we know him better. So Revelation, the book that probably talks about the last days and the end times more than any other book, including Daniel, it's called Revelation singular, not Revelations. It's not the Revelations where we go through all these different Revelations. It's the Revelation singular of Jesus Christ. That's the, whole, that's the title of the book. It's so that we can know him. It's Christ revealed what we want to happen every single Sunday when we get together and worship and learn about God. It's so that Christ can be revealed. It's why the scripture talks about the last days. So, teaching moment. I want to talk to you briefly about the four general interpretations of the end times. Four views of the end times. And then we're going to talk about some specific differences in views of Matthew 24, the text we're looking at today. But this matters because of a bunch of different ways that this message could be preached based on, with details, based on which view you hold. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be really brief here. Four general end time views. 
amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. We could, <laughs> we could talk a long time about the differences of these four views. The three major factors, the three major questions that these views disagree on have to do with, first, the reign of Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, it says Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years, which is, by the way, where most of them get their names from. The millennial part, thousand years, is that symbolic? Is that literal? Is that happening now? Is that happening in the future? And so we have all these different views. So the reign of Christ, second topic, second issue they disagree on, would be the role of Satan. Is he bound now? Is he bound at the end of time before Christ returns? The role of Satan. Third is the relationship between the nation of Israel and the church. And we could talk a lot about those differences and how they come into play with how certain verses are interpreted. We're not going to talk forever about the differences. I want to tell you about what they all agree on. What they all agree on is the basic the basic truth of the Apostles' Creed when it comes to the end times, which is, he, Jesus, will come to judge the living and the dead. They all agree with that. None of these views are heretical. No one should be dividing and separating different camps because of which view they have. They all believe in one hero, in one hope, one Jesus who will return at the end and win. Okay? They all agree on that. So, Email me if you want more information on these. I just, lots of notes. Moving on. There's two specific views of differences when it comes to Matthew 24 specifically that I want to mention to you. Two major questions. The first one has to do with the content of Matthew 24, what Jesus says. And the second difference has to do with the timing of it. So, the content. Jesus is talking about, in Matthew 24, is he only talking about the temple and when it's going to be destroyed, that second temple in Jerusalem in the first century? Or is he only talking about his second coming and the end of the age? Or is he talking about both? Full disclaimer, I think it's both. So just, and notice, by the way, through the when I say things like I think, just note that. He thinks this. May not be entirely the case. That's what he thinks. I think it's both. Question, <laughs> second issue question is about timing. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, does it have to do with the past? And here, just follow me a second. When I say past, I mean past for us. Because he's speaking to the disciples, 30-something AD. The destruction of the temple happens in 70 AD. That's 40 years later. For them, it's future. To us, it's past. So when we read Matthew 24 today, is he talking about events, all of it, events that have happened in the past? Or is he talking about events that only happen in the future? Or is he talking about events that happened in our past, the disciples' future, and the disciples' future and our future? Does that make sense? <laughs> and again, I think it's both. I think it's both. So, general end times interpretation, specific differences in Matthew 24. I think we're ready for our main idea. Here it is. For Matthew 24, verses 3 to 51, Jesus teaches us the signs of the times, the signs of the end, and how to live in between. Jesus teaches us the signs of the times, the signs of the end, and how to live in between. So here's how we're going to break that down. First of all, the signs of the times. In verses 3 to 14, 
it seems that he's talking about in every generation expect these occurrences to be taking place. Signs of the times. Signs that you're living on planet Earth after he left. Secondly, signs of the end of the age, verses 15 through 44. More specifically, events that will occur before his second coming. Then we have, so what do we do about it? How do we live in between? And that's verses 45 through 51. So, first of all, the signs of the times, verses 3 to 14. Long chapter, I'm not going to reread every section as I would like to do, but then you'll be here for an hour and a half, and some of you will be upset with me, and so I'm not going to do that. Signs of the times, I see three elements in verses 3 to 14. The question that every generation seems to ask, the issues that happen in every generation, and finally, the call for every Christian. So that's what we're working through. First of all, the question of every generation. In verse 3, the disciples go up to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which is why this chapter is often called the Olivet Discourse. It's just because of the setting. He's on the Mount of Olives, this relatively small mountainside in Jerusalem. I went to Israel. I thought it was going to be this massive mountain. It's not. It's pretty small, and it overlooks Jerusalem. And Jesus is there, sitting down, taking a breather. He was just yelling at the Pharisees for a while. And now the disciples come over and say, can you tell us when will these things be? And, and, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It looks like that's two questions. So the first question, when will these things be? What things? We just read in 24, verses 1 through 2, Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed. So I think they're asking when will the temple be destroyed, and when are you coming back? I think they had a moment of clarity here in asking the second question, because remember, Jesus has told them a few times that he was going to leave and then come back. So in this moment of clarity, they want to know, when is this temple going to be destroyed like you said it will be, and when will you be returning at the end of the age? They ask him those questions. And since Jesus ascended, since he left, every generation has been asking that question, has it not? When is the king coming back? And the more that we learn about the true Jesus, the true king, we are going to be asking that same question. Why? Because we want to know. Because there's nothing better in life to live for or to want than our relationship with God and wanting to see him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And when he comes back, that starts. So when are you coming? Every generation asks it. Jesus proceeds to talk about, in verses 4 to 12, the issues of every generation. What are those issues? I see at least two in verses 4 to 12. The issue of being led astray and the issue of being alarmed. So, the first one, the issue of being led astray. He says in verse 4 to his disciples, for us to hear this, see that no one leads you astray. Why would he say that? Because... In every generation, are there not false teachers, false messiahs? Like he said there would be. There's a whole bunch of examples. I looked up some. Here's a fun name in the second century. Bar Kochba, not sure I'm pronouncing that right, was a false messiah that led many people astray. And in every generation, there's people teaching lies about God, 
teaching lies about Jesus, pretending, saying, maybe they believe it, I don't know, that they are sent from God and they're the ones you should listen and believe and they're the Messiah and they've led countless millions of people in the wrong direction. Still happens today, does it not? There will be false teachers, false messiahs in every generation. And he says to his disciples, in every generation, don't be led astray. And when you know the true God, when you hear lies about him, you're going to reject that and not follow the teachers and the false messiahs that are saying something counter to what God has revealed to us. When we know the true God. I, I always find it interesting to use this analogy. The FBI in the forgery department, when they study checks to make sure they're legit checks, not the fake ones, the vast amount of their training is studying the real thing. They study the real checks. That way, when a fake one comes in, they say, huh, nope. I really know what a real check looks like. That's not it. There's this difference here. There's that difference there. And they're able to know and reject it. When we know the true God, when we hear lies, deceptions about him, we can say, spidey senses tingling, reject, move on. The issue of being led astray in every generation. Then there's the second issue in every generation of being alarmed in verse 6. He said, and see to it that you are not alarmed. Why may we be alarmed in this world? Because in verses 6 through 12, he says, in every generation, there's going to be wars. That seems like a reason to be alarmed. Rumors of wars. I looked up what a war is defined as. Here's what a war is. At least two organized groups against each other with at least 100 total deaths in that war with at least one death in the previous one year. And I looked up how many wars currently are taking place in the world today. Any idea? I was thinking three, maybe four. It's about 40. About 40 wars defined like that is, are taking place around the world, around the continents today. It's as, if every gen it's as if the world doesn't take a rest from fighting each other. Every generation, we're just killing each other. Every, every generation. Wars, rumors of wars, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, he says in verses 6 through 12, persecution, both verbally, physically, for those who believe, martyrdom, being killed for your faith in the 20th century. Maybe you've heard this before. There were more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 20th century than all centuries combined earlier, earlier than that. In every generation, it happens. People will leave the faith, he says. Betrayals will take place. The love of many will grow cold. That song we sing, come Lord, love waxes cold. Jesus said, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? In every generation, these issues are taking place. And Jesus says, don't be surprised. This is what life is like until he returns. He says in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. And we're back to contractions. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Contractions tell you the baby's coming. It doesn't tell you exactly when the baby's coming. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, all these things, they tell us something is coming. The king is returning. Not exactly when he will be returning. And as contractions get, the, the worst one is at, the most painful one is at the end before the new life. I think the worst of these kinds of tribulations that happen in every generation, I think the worst of it is going to be at the end, right before the king returns. So, 
questions of every generation, the issues of every generation. Then he gets into, in verses 13 to 14, the call of every Christian in this world, in every generation, verses 13 and 14, to endure to the end and to engage in the Great Commission. Endure to the end, engage in the Great Commission. Verse 13, endure to the end. While all those things are happening in life, pain externally, pain internally, with your own relationships of, of, of being you know, betrayed or not being able to, um, having pain of all kinds of different ways, both externally and internally, to endure to the end. Now, I don't know about you, I've tried to have a long distance relationship with pain, and it keeps refusing to, to do that. But pain can either do two things. It can make us run away from God, or it can refine us, refine our faith, help us know him more, be part of the fellowship of his sufferings that we may also be participators in his glory. He can test us with it, refine us with it, or we can run away from him and cling to something else. And what he's saying here, and to endure to the end, the reality is not everybody does. Not everybody endures to the end. Not all pass that. But in case you start thinking, okay, so how do I make sure that I endure to the end? How do I make sure that I can grit down and when bad things happen in life, I can be able to hold on to my faith and be able to get to the end by myself, on my own? In case you're thinking that, let me remind you of the gospel. <laughs> okay. There is one person who has overcome, and it's only in having faith in that one person, not you, who has overcome, that you become an overcomer. It says in John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. How do you have peace in a world where all those issues are taking place in every generation? You don't know what could happen in your life and the pain in your own life. Because you have faith in him who gives you peace. In this world you will have tribulation, you will, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Again, not you, not me. The reason we have confidence, I think one of Tara's staple verses that I, that I see over and over and over again, we sing it, we hear it, we pray it. Romans 8, I think if churches had their kind of distinct verses that they, that help define their church and what they cling to, we go to that verse all the time, Romans 8, 38 through 40. Of here's the, the, we will not be separated by the love of Christ, and it lists all these things, and we have confidence of why we won't be separated by his love. And the last thing he says, Paul says in Romans 8, of why we won't be separated and what can't separate us, he says, and no created thing will be able to separate me from the love of Christ. I'm a created thing. You're a created thing. We can't even separate ourselves from Christ's love. Because of us? Because of what we've done? Because of how I can grit down and bear and make it to the end? No. Because Jesus, the overcomer, who promises us there will be troubles in this life, but we can have peace in him because he overcame. Faith in the overcomer is how we endure to the end. Secondly, the call for every Christian and every generation is to engage in the Great Commission. He says that in verse 14. He says, his gospel, the news of what Jesus has done, who he is, will go to all nations, and then the end will come. That's going to happen. His gospel is going to reach all nations. And he wants us 
to be part of that, to be part of that great commission. He'll talk about it more at length when we get to Matthew chapter 28 at the end of Matthew, which we will talk about more on that Sunday. We will also talk about this as a church, our role in the Great Commission on January 2nd, 2022, January 2nd, 2022, when we have our church planting vision Sunday and talk about how we are part of that Great Commission that the Lord has given his church. So we'll talk about that more then. The questions of every generation, the issues of every generation, the call, though, for every Christian in every generation, the signs of the times. But then he gets into the signs of the end of the age, and that's in verses 15 through 44, and there is a lot in there. But let me talk about two things. One, what is this abomination of desolation he's talking about? And then secondly, the arrival of the king, the true king. So, the abomination of desolation is a sign of the end of the age, verses 15 through 22. So, what is it? What is the abomination of desolation? I have a really simple definition. It's an idol set up in the temple. The abomination of desolation is an idol set up in the temple. It was prophesied by Daniel the prophet long time before Jesus in Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11, and now Jesus is talking about it to his disciples in Matthew 24 in the first century. So, question, is he talking about something that was going to happen in the past, in our past? Has it already happened? Or is it something that happens in the future? Here's what I think. (laughs) Think. I think it's both past and future. Let me give you some examples. I think there's waves of this, and the first one In 168 BC, the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, and he also sacrificed swine, which was against the Mosaic Covenant. We hear that from from Josephus, I believe, the Roman historian, and that was an abomination set up in the temple, which led to a time of suffering and of death for the Jewish people. I think that's one fulfillment that Daniel talked about in Daniel 9 and 11. But then there's another one. Because when Jesus is talking about this in the first century, that had already happened in 168 BC. So what is he talking about? Well, in 70 AD, the Romans do destroy the temple. Before they destroy it, they go in with their Roman insignias, the gods and goddesses that they worshipped, in the temple of the Jewish people. Abomination of desolation, 70 AD which led to a time of great tribulation, a time unparalleled to the world at the time for a great city. I have a quote for you from D.A. Carson and G.K. Beale in their book, The Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old. Here's what they said about 70 AD when the Romans uh, destroyed the temple. Neither before nor after the destruction of Jerusalem has as high a percentage of a great city's population been so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved. We hear from some of the historians there was no wood left in Jerusalem because the Romans were using it to crucify the Jewish people. There was no wood left to do it. They killed so many people. And on top of that, they put many of them into the slave market to the point where there was almost no value because of how many. It was so thoroughly exterminated in 70 AD. It seemed to be fulfillments of this prophecy Jesus gave Jesus gave of this abomination of desolation that leads to a time of great death and tribulation. But 
like contractions leading up to birth, with the last one being the worst, I think there's another one of these coming. I think there's another abomination of desolation that will occur before the time of great tribulation, before the return of the king. And we might ask, and there are many evangelicals that hold to this interpretation of what could take place. Right now, there is no temple. How can an, abom how can a, an idol be set up? Well, there's already plans to build a third temple in Jerusalem. I think that along with the lines of what he's saying, there will be a third temple. There have been many lowercase antichrist figures throughout the generations that have done awful things to the people of God and others. I think there will be one final capital A antichrist figure that will, for whatever reason, the world will allow this person to rule over a one governmental system. As it says in Daniel 9 verse 27, there'll be some kind of peace treaty that this antichrist figure will break demand to be worshipped, set up this abomination of some kind in that temple, which will lead to the great tribulation right before the return of the king. I think that might happen. However, can I just say, I hold this interpretation in view pretty loosely. Might there no, is there a need for a third temple? Not necessarily. Might it happen differently? Sure. There were a lot of ideas about the first coming of Christ, and a lot of people were wrong, right? I would not be surprised at all if, a lot of, if we're all going to be surprised at the second coming of Christ and exactly how those details work out. We should hold it loosely. There shouldn't be great division over our ideas about how the events of the end times will work out. We good? Okay. So, abomination of desolation. Then in verses 23 to 25, he talks about the arrival of the true king. So, there's a lot in these verses, but I want to talk about three, three points. First of all, to know that deception will be part of the end times. Know that deception's coming. Pay attention and avoid obsession. Know that deception's coming and great death Pay attention and avoid obsession. So first of all, know that deception is coming. He says in these verses, 23 through 35, that there will be false teachers, false messiahs that will do such signs and wonders that they'll be able to deceive even the elect, even the chosen of God, even the people of God, if it were possible. If God didn't protect his people, people that shouldn't believe some of those lies may believe it. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We see examples in every generation of false teachers, false messiahs, that may present some kind of facts that seem so convincing, and that's why millions of people or more believe it. But what will be these signs, these, these wonders that these false teachers and, and false messiahs will do at the end of the age? Will it have to do with somehow trying to prove there's no way the God of the Bible can be true because here are these facts they present? Maybe it will be, look, there's overwhelming evidence to worship this, this figure, maybe this antichrist figure, because look at all the answers he has. Look at this information he has that somehow discredits the God of the Bible or discredits Jesus. Worship him. I don't know exactly what the deception will be, but it will be great. Avoid being deceived. Know that deception is coming. Secondly, pay attention. When he gives that that parable of the fig tree. He again uses the fig tree to make a point. When, the, when it, you see it start to bud, when leaves start to come, know that summer is around the corner. When you see all these things taking place, all that he mentioned before, 
including now this abomination of desolation and great deception, know that the time is soon, that Christ is going to return. Pay attention. Now, I'm, I'm almost positive some people are thinking, which I'm guilty of thinking this sometimes myself, okay? Why, do we, why, why even talk so much about when Christ can return? Because every generation has talked about or thinks, it could be our generation that Christ returned. It's been over 2,000 years. That's a long time to continue saying, hey, Christ could return in this generation, right? Well, it's interesting that we would say or think something like that, and I've thought that too. The reality is any of us could die at any, we don't know how long our life is, whether or not he comes back in our generation or not, all of what he says will happen in the future and of judgment and new heavens and new earth and heaven and hell, all of that's happening regardless. But could he come back in our generation? Why think about that? Why care about that? He wants us to. He wants us to be prepared for any day that he could return. In 2 Peter 3, Peter addresses the kinds of thoughts that people can have of why bother think about that. He says they, scoffers, you know, Lord forgive me for thinking that sometimes, will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Why bother? Life goes on the same as it always does. That's what he just said with, the, with when he returns. It's going to be like the days of Noah. They were eating, drinking, being given in marriage. Life was going on as usual until it wasn't. And that's how it's going to be at the end as well. He's going to come like a thief. Isn't that really interesting that God relates himself to a thief? Thieves take things that aren't theirs. Yeah, Jesus is going to come one day to take something that's not his, namely sin and death, and get rid of it forever. <laughs> it's going to come. So, Know that deception is part of the end times, both now and at the very end. Pay attention. Don't, don't push it aside. Don't scoff at it. And then finally, avoid obsession. Avoid it. No one knows exactly when he's going to return. Did you hear him say that? No one. Right? No one. Who knows? Nobody. So when someone takes out the, the chart <laughs> and they have all the things and they say, this is why the month or the year, this is why, you know, take this blood moon book or take this book about when the star of Bethlehem is going to align with these other stars, that means he must be coming in year 2055 because whatever. Politely try to either change the conversation or walk out of the room because they don't know. And you know what? The only day I'm sure Christ isn't returning is the day that people think he's going to return. It's in 2011. Everyone remember that one? You know? It's in, what is it, 1988? That was another one. There's all kinds, it's, every generation comes up with these dates. Please stop buying their books. Please stop listening to those things. Okay? No one knows. Listen to what he told us. No one knows. And there's a reason. It's so that we're ready. Okay. Signs of the Times. Signs of the end of the age, and then finally, in verses 45 to 51, so, what do we do about it? How do we live in between? And I'll be brief with these. Steward well and set your mind on the Lord. The parable he gives in verses 45 to 51, in light of the fact of the signs of the end and the signs of the ages, how do we live in between? He gives this very simple parable of two stewards, faithful servants, a faithful servant and an unfaithful servant. 
It's, he says the faithful servant was taking care and feeding you know, his household, and the unfaithful servant was getting drunk and beating people. <laughs> what does that have to do with? It has to do with how you're treating people. So one of the ways he's calling us to think about our lives and in the in-between time, either before we die or before Christ's return, is how are you treating people? Very, very practical, right? He's nothing but practical. <laughs> how are we treating people? What's our relationship like with the Lord and with other people? Steward well. Steward the gifts that God has given you to serve others. I would write 1 Peter 4, verse 10 in the sand every time before I pitched. Not really even, I just liked the verse. I didn't know exactly what it meant. I didn't know the Lord was going to drill that verse into my mind for the rest of my life going into ministry. 1 Peter 4.10 says, but each one should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. Let's use the gifts God has given to us to serve others, to serve the church, to lead people to the Lord, to administer God's grace in its various forms. I want to highlight one word in that verse. Each one should use whatever gift he or she has received faithfully. Some of us, I think, all of us, can get tired, can get worn out from using our gifts. But he says do it faithfully. Do it that whole time in between, your life, between the time that you live and then either you die or Christ returns. Be faithful. Use the gifts he's given to you, not just for a season of your life, not just for a short, your whole life. Be faithful with the gifts God has given to you to serve others. He says in verse 47, faithfulness will lead to more responsibility in the new heavens and new earth. Now I know what you might be thinking, wait a minute, when I work harder at my job and I get my deadlines done soon, my boss sometimes gives me more work without more pay. It just, oh, you're productive, let me give you more work. And you think, why be more faithful? Why be more productive? That's not what it's going to be like <laughs> for the new heavens, new earth. Be faithful with what the gifts the Lord has given to you. Steward it well. And in two weeks, when he gets into Matthew 25, he gives some examples. When we get to use these, how do we use these hands? How do we steward well what the Lord has given to us? Steward well. And secondly and lastly, set your mind on the Lord. Real simple sentence I want to say to you. <laughs> Don't get distracted. Let me pause for a second. Don't get distracted. There's all kinds of different ways you can get distracted. You can get distracted in the study of the end times and go down a million different rabbit holes to the point where you're not really focusing on God and focusing on loving and serving other people. There's all kinds of good things that you can get distracted on and spend your whole life on. Don't get distracted from resting in the finished work of Christ and of loving other people. Don't get distracted from those things. Let me give you a quote by N.T. Wright to close this out. Based on Matthew 24, listen to this quote. We too are called to be faithful, to hold on and not be alarmed. We too may be called to live through troubled times and to last out to the end. We too may see the destruction of cherished and beautiful symbols. Our calling then is to hold on to Jesus himself, to continue to trust him, to believe that the one who was vindicated by God in the first century will one day be vindicated before the whole world. We too are called to live with the birth pangs of God's new age and to trust that in his good time, the new world will be born.
contractions tell you not necessarily when the baby's coming, but the baby's coming. The signs that Jesus has explained to us show us that one day he will return. And the in-between period for when he left and when he comes back will be a time both of pain but also of the spread of the gospel and of the good gifts that the Lord gives to us. I think at the end, right before he comes, it will be the worst of the contractions of the tribulations. But it means the hope of Jesus returning is right around the corner. Do not be alarmed because you belong to him, the overcomer who will keep you and preserve you to the end and into forever. Let's pray. Lord, there was a lot that you just spoke to your disciples. There was a lot that you said about the world, about what the world will seemingly be like before you come back. Lord, would you help us to focus on what matters, to hear your words and to know more about who you are and your heart and how you call us to live, what you want us to do, Lord, to abide in you, to endure to the end, to use all that you've given us to serve others, to wait on you, not, not passively sitting on our hands, not following endless rabbit holes of theories or interpretations, but clinging to you, Jesus. Knowing the truth, Lord, about you and your character, to actively wait, to be those that serve, that are part of the great commission that you've called us to be in. And God, we don't do that alone. We do it together as we follow you, our great shepherd, who has secured and sealed us with your Holy Spirit until you return. Pray this in your name. Amen.